Pomajana Trimananda Shajana Jana Salakaya Chakshunalitanyena Tsmai Shri Guru Venamaha Good evening everyone. Welcome to Srila Jiva Goswami's Bhagavat Sandarbha. Tonight we'll be discussing beginning at Anucheta 17. Bhagavad has both conscious and inert potencies. So what got us up to this point? Bhagavan's potencies are intrinsic to him. They're not something separate from him, although there may appear to be separation based on our point of view. And we concluded that discussion with a, a pronouncement that they're all perfect and complete. So even those potencies that may seem contradictory and his potencies can be contradictory. They are all perfect and complete in themselves. From his viewpoint, there's no imperfection. From our imperfect viewpoint, there may appear to be some imperfection. The 17th Anucheta. This Anucheta continues that Bhagavan has both conscious and inert potencies. So they fall into two different categories. Some are conscious in themselves and some are inert. So we will read the Anucheta wherein Srila Jiva Goswami will quote from Haranyakasipu. United with all these potencies in this manner, united, so Jiva is carrying forward, Krishna and his potencies are united. They are one supreme personality. They are intrinsic in him. You cannot separate, as I just said, the potent from its potency. So Jiva goes forward. United with all these potencies in this manner, in the manner he just discussed in the previous section, the Lord is endowed with both conscious, chit, and unconscious, achit, energies. Even Haranyakasipu, Eulogizing Brahma as the supreme controller spoke in this way. I offer my obeisances to the Lord who has conscious and inert potencies. That's from the Bhagavatam 7th Canto. If you remember the Leela of Hiranyakasipu, of course we like to remember it from the other side, Prahlad Leela. If we remember this, that Hiranyakasipu he saw Lord Brahma as the supreme, and therefore he he summons Lord Brahma due to his powerful austerities, and they were quite amazing, Karanyakasipu's austerities. When Brahma appeared before him to award him some benediction, Brahma was kind of in a forced condition to do that because Karanyakasipu's austerities had reached such a level that it seemed like the whole universe was at the time of devastation, like the fire of devastation had come. That's how powerful the heat was from those austerities of one jivatma, Hiranyakasipu. Well, of course, we know he's kind of a special jivatma. That's that's a whole other story. Of course, Hiranyakasipu offered prayers to Lord Brahma. You could say it was like praying, but he was... He put himself in a situation where he could make demands of the creator of the universe. 
That's actually how powerful he had become. And he wanted to have everything that Brahma had. In fact, if he could have controlled Brahma, he would have liked that too. We'll go on reading from Jiva Goswami's Anucheta. The point that's being made here by Hiranyakasipu is he's seeing that his Lord, that the that Brahma, who he's envisioning as the Lord, as the creator of the universe, he wasn't able to perceive any further than that. He sees that he has all potencies, and both some are conscious and some are not. The conscious Lord is the shelter for other conscious entities. Just as the effulgent sun orb is the fountainhead of the light in the sun's rays and its reflection. Among these various potencies, the intermediary energy called the jiva will be described in the appropriate place in Paramatma Sandarbha. Now, in order to explain the internal potency, external potency will first be introduced. Vishnu Purana names them as the para, superior, and apara, inferior, energies, respectively. Now we have a quote from the Vishnu Purana. O Supreme Self of all selves, O Controller of the Gods, I bow down to your eternal inferior potency, the support of the three gunas, which exist in all beings. I further worship your all-powerful infinite potency, which is a goddess beyond the reach of word, mind, and sense objects, devoid of distinguishing characteristics, and which illuminates the wisdom of the wise. This latter infinite para potency manifests in multiple forms, as confirmed in Shruti by the phrase Parasya Saktir Vividaiva Suyate. On to a little explanation of this Anucheda. The Anucheda itself is quite extensive, but we will go to an explanation which which will highlight the specific points being made by Srila Jiva Goswami. Srila Jiva Goswami is establishing that there's three ways that this intrinsic potency, potencies of the Supreme Bhagavan, manifest. And he proceeds to describe the internal potency, Swarup Shakti. Bhagavan's three energies fall into two categories. His three energies. So we know what his three energies are. The internal, the marginal, and the external. The internal is his Swarup Shakti and all that that entails, including all his spiritual potencies in that internal atmosphere, Vaikuntha, all of his intimate associates, the holy doms. The Swarup Shakti is part of his conscious potency. Then we have the marginal potency, and that's also conscious, and that's the jiva, intermediary energy. And then we have the achit, the inert, which is the external energy, which we call matter, maya, material energy, and the illusion that it entails. So Brahman, again, going back to what is the entirety of Bhagavat Sandarbha, it's an explanation of the second half of the Vedantitat verse, 
Brahmeti, Paramatmeti, Bhagavaniti Sabjate. Brahman is a particular realization of Bhagavan in which one does not distinctly perceive his energies, like seeing sunlight without the sun. So we can go out in the day and there's illumination, we're in the sunlight. It, do, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're looking at the sun, that we're seeing the sun globe. We're still in the light of the sun, though. So it's the same energy, but we're not perceiving its source. Brahman realization, a beta, recognizes the non-dual potential source. A chinta preserves condition of non-duality while encompassing both beta and a beta. We come to this terminology again, which is Jiva's own terminology. A chinta, beta, a beta, tattva. A chinta, beta, a beta, tattva. Brahman realization is seeing the abeda, the alikeness. Everything is the same energy. But that's not the whole story. It's both that, that absolute non-dual. Non-dual means it's everything. So that supreme non-dual spiritual substance, that supreme being, is both beta and abeta. It's both all-pervading spiritual energy, and it's also that supreme personality possessing unlimited shaktis. So if we're only seeing the, the energetic source and not actually perceiving the distinction of the energies of that source, that's your Brahman realization. It's interesting that Jiva Goswami uses Haranyakasipu, the chief of the Asuras. We think that's an atheist, but actually, really he's an atheist because he's against the Supreme Lord, not because he has a, a misconception course he did have a misconception in that he perceived Brahma as the supreme that was rectified later <laughs> in a most dramatic way he certainly understood enough of Vedic thought to know that there had to be a person behind that so he wasn't like a modern day atheist so we should be clear on that in bygone ages even the Asuras accepted God as a person they were just in opposition to him. They believed in his existence, but they were adverse. They were willing to to put him, take him out of his place if they could, to take his position. <clears throat> so fast forward, and now, and then we come in with with a. Uh, with the modern atheist, and he first, the first philosophies like that, modern atheist, uh, um, was propounded by uh, Charvaka Muni. Charvaka Muni, Charvaka is interesting, it means beautiful speech. So he's an eloquent speaker, or he had a fascinating philosophy. Can mean either thing. 
So his philosophy was enjoy your life because you came from nothing and at the end you go back to nothing. So enjoy your food and enjoy young damsels and enjoy your senses because it's all coming from matter. And it's interesting the way his atheistic philosophy is presented. He said, just like some intoxicating herb, we don't find anything that's intoxicating in the earth, but you plant a seed for an intoxicating herb, a plant comes, it can create an effect. So similarly, that effect is not coming from anywhere because the characteristics that are being, that are there within the plant are not there within the earth, which is nourishing to produce the plant. So therefore, that's his, that's how he arrives at his material conclusion. We don't see much value to that kind of philosophy. It really makes no sense to us, but that's how he would, that was his way of logical argument. So his philosophy was, the, you know, consciousness was only going to exist as long as the body exists. Take away the body and the consciousness is gone. Well, practically speaking, we see that that's interesting enough, you know, with, with Jiva Goswami using the example of Haranyakasipu. Haranyakasipu basically dismantled his material body, did he not? He placed his body on the top of an anthill and it was consumed. There was no flesh left. There was only the bone. And he, Haranyakasipu, took refuge. Where's his brain? The answer, have consumed what we would call the physical brain. They've consumed all of his flesh, all of his muscle, all of his membrane. And he's taken refuge in the bones itself. So it's interesting in using Haranyakasipu as an example we can look at this this fantastic philosophy of Charvaka Muni, which is, it's akin to the modern philosophy of the evolutionists, is it not? <coughs> They're also thinking that consciousness evolves from matter. But we can make the argument, it's, it's like an argument, if consciousness is coming from matter, it's like light is coming from darkness. Because in the material realm, that's all we have is, is darkness, what's producing the light? What's the source? Or knowledge is, is arising from a blend of ignorance. Where else could it come from? In looking properly at what the material world is, one could posit these kind of objections to a Charvaka Muni. And then, of course, we have the Sankhya philosophy of Kapila Day which blows it right out of the water. And there's basic points there that we can take note of. That which is non-existent cannot produce anything. That kind of sums it up right there. If something doesn't exist, then where did this body come from? 
you're saying that the body, the body itself, what's the source? And the consciousness is only there as long as the body is there. And a product, if we look to the world around us, everything that's produced, it's dependent on its cause. Milk just doesn't fall from the sky. It comes from a cow's udder. Every effect that we see has a cause that's related to it. And a particular cause cannot produce an effect that lies beyond its causal power. You're not going to get gold from the cow's udder. The cow's udder produces milk. Gold comes from the mountain. Rather, a particular cause gives rise only to a particular effect. Only a capable cause produces an effect. You want a child? You need to have someone as a wife who's fertile and can give birth to a child. A barren woman will not give you a child. And cause transmutes into effect. So this is all from the Sankhya Karika of Lord Kapila. And there's just a difference there. Devotees of Bhagavan, they study the cosmos in order to appreciate the Supreme. The atheist studies the same cosmos, but what's their intent? Everything revolves around intent. They're studying the cosmos in order to exploit it, to themselves become the god of that cosmos. Srila Goswami, he cites two verses from the Padma Purana in speaking of the para and apara energies. So first he cited Aranyakasipu from the Srimad Bhagavatam. Then he cites the Vishnu Purana Interesting enough, the two verses from the Vishnu Purana are verses spoken by Prahlad Maharaj. Just to remind you of those verses. This is from Prahlad. O supreme self of all selves, O controller of the gods, I bow down to your ex- eternal inferior potency. So Prahlad's bowing down to Maya. He's worshipping Maya. I bowed down. And how can a devotee do that? Well, because what's he looking at the at the inferior potency as? As a potency of Krishna. Krishna's not different from his potencies. Even though, and we'll, we can go back over the vision of Srila Vyasudev, he saw Maya was somewhat separate. But that doesn't mean that Maya was still not the maidservant of the Supreme. So Prahlad's bowing down to material nature, bowing down to this potency, because he sees everything in relationship to Krishna. O controller of the gods, I bow down to your eternal inferior potency, the support of the three gunas, which exists in all beings. I further worship your all-powerful, infinite potency, which is a goddess beyond the reach of word, mind, and sense objects, 
devoid of distinguishing characteristics and which illuminates the wisdom of the wise. Both these energies, the para and the apara, the conscious and the inert, both are eternal. The para energy, the conscious energy, is truly beyond the mind, speech, and sense perception. Another way to look at these energies is the para energies are like the queen to a king. Where's the queen reside? In the inner chamber and serves in, in that more intimate atmosphere. Whereas a maidservant is staying in the out, outer chamber, still performing her duties in that way. So moving forward to the 18th Anucheda, Maya's two divisions. This is a very long Anucheda. I'm not going to relay in this discourse all the verses that were used by Srila Jiva Goswami. I'm going to rather go to the summarization of the main points that are made in support of in and explanation of these two divisions of Maya. So this is Jiva Goswami, just the beginning of the Anucheta. We'll read a little bit. He quotes from the Srimad Bhagavatam. The Anucheta begins, The Supreme Lord now explains the external energy to Brahma as follows. So now he goes to a different section of the Bhagavatam. The Chatur Sloki. These are the core verses. If you look to the Srimad Bhagavatam, these four verses were unpacked into the 18,000 that we study as our Bhagavatam. This verse, that which is perceived only when the underlying essential reality is not perceived, but which is never perceived in the self, you should know to be my Maya. That which is perceived only when the underlying essential reality, me, is not perceived. Everything that you perceive when you're not perceiving me, anything that you think you're perceiving independent of me, that's my Maya. But which is never perceived in the self, you should know to be my Maya. Manifesting both as a reflection and as darkness. So anything that we are perceiving independent of the groundwork of a consciousness, this is Krishna speaking, of Krishna, and that's the important thing here. That This is a real definition of Krishna consciousness, isn't it? that we see as the underlying principle in all of our perception as the Supreme Lord. There's nothing independent of Krishna. And if we perceive anything in our mind, our consciousness doesn't relate it to Krishna, then that's maya. But which is never perceived in the self. You should know to be my Maya. So you never see Maya in the pure self. 
what is the self? The self is pure. The self is not impure. Our identifying with the external energy of Krishna, that can lead us to an illusion that would mean that we're not related to Krishna, but which is never perceived in the self. Maya is never perceived in the true self, whether it be the super self or the minuscule particle of self. Those two things are my Maya. Manifesting both as a reflection, a boss, and as darkness, Thomas. In other words, it is that which is perceived as external to me. Anything we perceive external to Krishna. And any misconception we may apply to the self where it's not in relation to Krishna, that's also Maya. So the Maya Shakti, this third energy, right? We have the intrinsic potency, we have the marginal potency, now we have the external potency. Maya Shakti has two features. Jiva Maya and Guna Maya. Maya has two potencies. Sentient, perceptible, and gunamaya, inert matter itself. This verse, the Chatur Sloki verse that we just read, it denotes the basic characteristics of Maya. Four basic characteristics. Maya does not exist within Bhagavan. Maya does not exist without Bhagavan. Maya exists outside Bhagavan. Maya is perceived when Bhagavan is not perceived. Now in the commentary, a discussion of the Shaktas is put forth. And uh, I am going to relate that. So when we look at the Shaktas, they believe in what? They worship the Shakti. To what extent do they worship the Shakti? They see her as the supreme controller. They worship her as, which would be Maya Devi, as the Mula Prakriti, the original nature. And that she divides herself into Purusha and Prakriti. Their worship is one where their philosophy is that nature and the personification of nature, Maya Devi, or whatever name you want to give her, she separates herself to herself, the controller, and the Prakriti, the controlled energy. She is also Mahamaya in that she creates Vishnu and Brahma and Shiva. This is the extent of their philosophy. Out of herself. And ultimately she is near Guna and called Parabrahman. Now Jiva brings up this, this information in order that we can... He brings it up to again reinforce the different presentations, Puranic presentations that are out there. The major Puranas, there's six each for Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. But Srimad Bhagavatam is only for Visuddha Sattva. Pure sattva is free of the gunas. We will find Puranas that will 
support the these kind of a philosophy as we hear here in relationship to the Shaktas and their worship of the Shakti or simply the material manifestation and its control. Durga, Kali, this is the Supreme Personality. This is the mood of those Puranas. But what's coming out to us is even though people can put forth evidences in opposition to our position regarding the supreme absolute truth and what's presented in the cream of all the Vedas, the topmost Puranic proof in support of the Vedanta Sutra, we have to understand how to reconcile that. Because they'll say, well, in this Purana it says this, and you're saying it's, it says Bhagavan, and you're saying Krishna, and we're saying Kali. What we can say to the claim of the Shaktas is that when we look to Vedic evidence, all the schools of thought will accept the Prastana Triya, which are the three major scriptural authorities. So now let's look to the Maya in two divisions, Jiva, Maya, and Guna Maya. The Jiva Maya covers the living being's true nature or Swarup. It's called the efficient or the instrumental cause. It is that potency which covers knowledge. And the Guna Maya is the material body, the senses, the sense objects, all that the jiva uses for its sense enjoyment. It's called the material aspect. So we have the, the instrumental aspect and the material aspect. So an explanation is given, which hopefully will help us understand this. So a young man goes to the nightclub. First thing he does is he gets intoxicated, and his intelligence becomes covered. The covering of the intelligence with ignorance, illusion, accepting one thing for another. In that intoxicated state, his consciousness is bewildered. He can be easily allured by a beautiful young woman at that time. That's comparable to Guna Maya. The attack of Maya is from both the Jiva Maya and the Guna Maya the internal and the external. So internally, our consciousness, our intelligence, becomes covered over. And then there's a presentation of objects external to our being, our actual self. Internal and external. Jiva Maya and Guna Maya. Jiva goes on in his Sandarbha, although Maya is real and this world manifested by her is also real, the bondage of the Jiva is not real. Maya is real and the material world is real. It's always changing, but it's, it does exist. But the bondage of the Jiva is not real. Otherwise, there would be no possibility of liberation. This is confirmed by, in Sri Krishna's teachings to Uddhava. 
Krishna says to Uddhava, My dear Uddhava, due to the influence of the material gunas of nature, the living being is sometimes designated as conditioned and sometimes as liberated, though in reality he is never really conditioned or liberated. Since I am the Supreme Lord of Maya, which is the cause of the gunas of nature, I am never to be considered liberated or in bondage. So Krishna is talking from a very high viewpoint here. Absorption and separativeness is the cause of bondage. Thus the jiva is called nichabada or anadi bada. If one is absorbed in devotion, then maya cannot do harm. Therefore, the material world needn't be renounced. All that needs fixed is our consciousness needs to be reoriented. The field of absorption changed. Again, back to the core verse from the Chatur Sloki that Jiva started out utilizing. Maya doesn't exist. Maya is simply a state of mind. If you see everything in relationship to me, there is no Maya. You will never be an illusion if your consciousness is always absorbed and you see me the, as the foundation of everything that you experience. Again, a little bit more explanation. The Jiva Maya has two features, Vidya and Avidya. Vidya is the gateway to liberation. Avidya is the gateway to bondage. Gunamaya creates upadis, material designations. So that material cause, it has an effect on us and it, it can make an impression. So we want to enjoy it again and again or we want to avoid it again and again or we want to enjoy it, then we want to avoid it. Chanchala, accepting, rejecting. It's all the same thing, but it makes an impression according to our consciousness. And once what, what was once enjoyable becomes now something that we would void at all, all cost. As you change your consciousness, there's no way that you would go back to activities that you once enjoyed. You would just simply avoid them. You would know this is not going to have a positive effect. At this stage, the consciousness is becoming cleansed and certain things become repulsive. Give up your spiritual life. Those things will become attractive again. That's the modes of material nature. They're constantly vying for our attention. So these apodis are constantly there and they're coming to the forefront based on how we're being influenced by the modes. So we identify with these apodis. We become very enamored and we want to enjoy or avoid again and again. Now, this explanation is a little interesting. When we look to the verse that Krishna utilized, the commentator here ties that into uh, a method of seeing. If your consciousness was always bathing in awareness of me, that doesn't mean you're not going to see anything but Krishna. It means your consciousness is constantly aware of Krishna. So if that's where your consciousness is, the possibility of maya, this reflection in your consciousness, 
which you're accepting as real, will not have any bearing on your existence. There's a closing remark here. And if we can have an understanding of how this Mahamaya is working on us, Krishna's external potency, both in its Jiva Maya and Guna Maya forms, we can also have some insights into how Yoga Maya also bewilders, setting aside the majesty and the awe and reverence and allow us to enter into an intimate relationship with the Supreme, even though he's so majestic and dazzling. So again, it's a point of reflection to think about these things, to think deeply. That's what Jiva's all about, to enter deeply into these understandings. It seems like it's so elementary, some of the points that he's making. This is really just the ABCs of spiritual understanding. But when you really understand it to the depth that Jiva's presenting it, it itself opens up a whole world of grounded spiritual sambandha gyan. So I'll stop there. Any questions? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hare Krishna.